Answering your questions about matters of the head, heart, and health. This is Gut Feelings with Lo Bosworth. Hello, hello. Welcome to your brand new episode of Gut Feelings, your go-to podcast for advice on matters of the head, heart, and health. I am your host, Lo Bosworth, the founder of women's wellness brand, Love Wellness. You can find us at Walmart in Digestive Health, Target in Natural Beauty and Women's OTC, Ulta in Bath on Amazon, and of course, at lovewellness.com. On this show, we answer your head, heart, and health advice questions like your best friend would. We're all about building an open community here, so if you have a particularly tough or awkward question for us, that's okay. Ask away. As you may know, tough and awkward is what we do best at Love Wellness. So with that, let's dive into your questions and today's guest. All right. I am so looking forward to today's conversation. It is very timely, very relevant. On the show today, we have none other than the founder and CEO of So Well Health, Dr. Alexandra Soa on the show. She's a double board certified internist and her specialty is obesity medicine. She is an expert on nutrition, weight loss, hormonal health. And I am so excited to ask her all of your questions and just get some really amazing advice. So join me now in welcoming Dr. Alexandra Sowa to Gut Feelings. Hi, Dr. Sowa. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This is going to be such a good episode. I feel like this is our weight loss episode, but talking about weight loss in a way that is real, meaningful. I mean, you're such a brilliant doctor. Like, could you just give our listeners sort of like your background and bio? Because you are the real deal. And we've been friends for a while. And I've just so admired how you are really changing the conversation around healthy body weight, healthy body image, like what that means and everything that we have at our disposal now to change how we think about weight loss in America, which is such a huge health issue that needs to be tackled. It needs an overhaul, that's for sure. It needs an overhaul, yeah. (laughs) Just a quick little bio on me. So I'm a dual board certified doctor of internal medicine in a field called obesity medicine. And I do use the term obesity medicine because I actually like to destigmatize weight and take it away from being a willpower thing and more of a hey, it's just inertia of the body and it can be a disease state. And I don't want anyone to have feelings that it's like their will that led them to this place. Right. Just like I would say, like I would be a, you know, a heart doctor or, you know, a cardiologist. I'm an obesity medicine doctor. I started years ago at Johns Hopkins when I was an undergrad and I was like super fascinated by public health and how I could change large scale health issues And through my medical training, that led me to this field of weight management because I felt like every disease that I was treating in my residency at NYU was end stage related to our bodies and a lot of the extra weight we carried on it. High blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all of these things. And I was like, wait, can we just like help keep people healthy? And so that's always been my motto. And prevention is where I believe we should be putting the majority of our resources. And unfortunately, we don't. In prevention, that's interesting. So to me, weight loss and helping people attain healthy body weights, healthy body ideals, metabolic health is at the core of everything I do. And our goal for my patients and my message that I spread is all about health prevention. And our goal should be healthy, never skinny, because that doesn't lead anywhere good. And that's the conversation we need to change. 
That's really interesting. So when you talk about obesity medicine, I mean, I feel like in the last two years, Ozempic is like on the scene. People now like understand what a GLP-1 was. And so I really want to talk about that. But I also want to talk about your practice before sort of the rise of these medications. Have you always been using these medications and all of a sudden they just like became popular because of TikTok? Like there was like an obvious shift that happened. One day nobody was talking about it. And one day it was everywhere. And I'm just curious you know, sort of like how your practice has changed over the past couple of years. Yeah. So I've been doing this for about 10 years and GLP-1 medications, what in essence Ozempic is, have actually been around since 2005. Whoa, really? Not Ozempic, but medications in this class. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a new drug class. And so I have always been using these medications to the best of my ability. Now, what changed a few years ago. And why I think the conversation really started shifting was that we go V, which is the exact like replica of Ozempic, but just with a different name, got FDA approval. We go V. Oh, we go V. I thought you said we go V. I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) The the, the drug we go V. Um, It got FDA approval for weight management. And that really started to shift. Now, we'd actually had other GLP-1 drugs approved for weight management before, but they weren't as effective. So my view is different than I think a lot of doctors or platforms where you can get access to these meds. I truly believe in a holistic approach to how we take care of our bodies and how Mm -hmm. we achieve metabolic health. And for many, that is weight loss. But it can't just be a medication. And so always in my practice, it's been a focus on food, what you eat, how you eat, how you think about food, how you take care of your brain, how you plan. I really am big into cognitive behavioral therapy to really understand our relationship with food and our body and our behaviors. But then, yes, in my toolkit is this super effective medication in the GLP-1 category, and I do use those. There are other medications, though, and they're looking what, at— like Fen-Fen? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you heard about, like, here, take this crack 10 years ago. <laughs> so Fen-Fen has actually been a really long time. We were young. We were, like, little kids when that drug— Right. Hit, you know, and— Like your mom's weight loss drug. <laughs> and totally. And that was, that was not a good day for the fields, that drug. It wasn't—it's fentramine is actually still on the market and is actually a, a useful tool. And it's safe, and it's been around since the 1950s. It was fenfluramine, which is the other part that was bad. Now we're getting a little technical. But, yeah, there are other meds, and they are safe, and they're well-studied. And not everybody needs a medication, and not everybody needs a GLP-1 medication. So I think you need to kind of take, like, a real depthful view of a patient when they come to you for these things. But listen, there is a revolution going on with these medications. They are incredibly effective. They don't just work on the level of appetite suppression. They get deep down into what I would call your metabolism, and they help fix it, and they really change our brain, and our relationship to food, which is thrilling. So we can't avoid that. Yeah, there are other things and there have been other tools, but there's a definite new shift. And I'm glad people like, I don't know if I can say it, but just this week, Oprah came out and said she's on one of these medications. I saw that. You know, you and I are recording this episode at a really interesting time because I feel like the narrative has just started to change. And you can like 
sort of see it happening day by day. It reminded me of when I started Love Wellness. I'm like, oh, I guess we're talking about vaginal health now. But, you know, I think what's interesting to me, not just the timing of this, but I think that this type of medicine not having its moment because it's not a flash in the pan, obviously. <laughs> like you see how many people have had success with sort of like a new approach to weight loss, you know, in a very short period of time. I think the world has changed forever and I'm sure you do too. I think for me, what I think about a lot is growing up, you would go to your general practitioner and they would weigh you and they would do like your body mass index and stuff. And there's a disconnect between how you go from like your primary care doctor to a doctor like you who is double board certified to help address and treat obesity. And I think that that's a pretty wide gap for people to be like, I go to my doctor, they like tell me I'm fat or whatever, to like actually seeking out care and to understand that so much of this is more than what we were taught to believe about our bodies. And I say this because I had a great ADHD doctor come on the show the other day, and I learned so much about how my behavior is connected to psychology, which should be obvious, but things about spending money, how you like live in your house, like I, I don't know. And so when you talk about cognitive behavioral therapy in terms of how it affects our bodies and our relationship with food, I'm just curious for you to dive more into maybe how does somebody end up in your office being like, hi, Dr. Soa, I need help. Gosh. So in my office, I see everyone age 18 to 80. And I think all walks of life, men, women. And I think it's really important to say that there's not like a particular stereotype of person who might need extra help. The fact of the matter is 75% of our country suffers from excess weight. So it's the majority of us, right, who carry extra weight on our bodies that wasn't intended to be there. And it's not just because something you did, but it's our whole lives. It's that we're sitting at a computer. You and I are doing that right now, right? And it's how the food is processed and how we eat and just life and environmental and the plastics that come in to our body and the pollution in the air. I mean, there are a lot of environmental plastics, factors. Right. <laughs> I know. I know it'll be to get there. But, you know, people are like, you know, just eat less. Well, it's a lot more complicated than that. It's so hard. Yeah. The best diet, sorry to take us on a, a different journey all of a sudden, but you know, I learned in the past few years a lot about blood sugar and like keeping your blood sugar balanced. And that was the best for me because I've always been somebody that carries a little bit of extra weight, but I eat really healthy and I exercise a lot. And I was just always hungry, <laughs> hungry and craving things. And sort of like a blood sugar balanced diet was the best thing that I could do. And I mean, it certainly has helped me, but it doesn't like conquer all. No. You know what I mean? And I probably put that bug in your ear because that's the fact is that most people who come to me are actually really healthy eaters. They're doing yeah. all the things that, like you said, you walk into a primary office, a doctor's office, and they're like, you should lose some weight. And people are like, oh, <laughs> no shit. <laughs> like, no I know that. shit. <laughs> yeah. No, no shit. No shit, doc. Thank you. <laughs> and you're like, well, but I've done all of these things and I go to the gym, but that traditional mantra isn't working. And so I think when you have kind of put in the effort or you feel like that, like I just work so hard all the time, that's when seeking out a specialist is a really good idea. I just had a patient this week who told me that starting one of these medications and eating in the way that I kind of prescribe, which is, again, looking at the macronutrients and looking at blood sugar and things like that. She's like, I just feel like I got four hours of my day back. 
up until this point, and she's 40 years old, she's like, I just constantly was thinking about how I can do better with my next meal, with my next workout. And she'd been released. And I just loved that. I mean, she's the perfect example of, yeah, when you're doing everything and it's actually taking over your life in an unhealthy way. But many people would say, hey, that was health. Look, she was doing her best at the gym and with food. No. And it wasn't bordering on obsessive. It was just what she had to do to maintain and to slow the game. And then we've helped her kind of relieve her of that. And so I think if you've ever been gaslit at the doctor's office, if you're ever afraid to go and get laid, if you have this terrible memory and relationship with stepping on the scale at the pediatricians or in your school nurse's office and people are like, you should lose weight. You know, I think a lot of good work can happen in an office like mine where you start to undo some of that trauma and the, the constant thinking about it and the constant worry and self-blame. Yeah. So I'm curious if you can give us, and I realize for our listeners, typically I do like a, a health question, a heart question, a head question. I'm sort of going to weave that in a little bit today, but Dr. So is just such a cool guest. I just want to talk to her and have this conversation. But I'm curious, just on the health front, can you give me, and I know that you said you see all kinds of people, but give me like your typical profile of somebody that comes to you. Let's just take, they're a female, they're 35 years old. I'm curious what the profile looks like. And for somebody who has been struggling to lose weight or struggling with their eating, struggling with this stuff for a long time, broad strokes, what is going on with that person? And I know that you cannot diagnose a made up person that I just created in my mind. For no, but the I'm already of visualizing them. I but I'm it. just curious, like generally, like what are the most common things that you are seeing amongst your patients in terms of what they need to work on and the health issues that they're having? And sort of like what you can help them with. Yeah. So for my young female patients, I see a lot of women in the PCOS, what I call PCOS-ish adjacent space. And they are very fast weight gainers. And their whole lives, they have tried to diet and eat well and go to the gym. And their weight has crept up. And sometimes it gets away from them. Sometimes they're just sitting at a 15-pound overweight place. And it really starts to accelerate after the age of 30. And we can start to see some health conditions that are really quiet. Like maybe you went to the doctors and they're like, your blood pressure is a little high. Not like high enough that we're going to put a medicine on it. And one of the big things I see is actually misdiagnosis of early insulin resistance. This is something I'm huge on is finding early, early pre-diabetes. So I call it pre-pre-diabetes. So a lot of times, primary doctors... What does that look like? How yeah. do you diagnose that? So when I was in my traditional training, we really didn't look at things like the average blood sugar markers and fasting blood sugar in a way that we really cared until it got to a disease state. And so often people would be like, your labs look great and your cholesterol is like not optimal and your blood sugars aren't optimal. But your doctor is like, well, you're not yet like pre-diabetic and you're not yet type 2 diabetes and you don't yet need a cholesterol that needs a statin medication. And you're so young. So like, just, you know, try better. But all the signs are there. My right. goodness. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm tracking. I'm tracking. <laughs> yeah. So the biggest sign is honestly, in my world, is that like weight just keeps coming on and it's impossible to lose and you're doing everything possible to be healthy, quote unquote. And then for women who have PCOS, 
PCOS is a disease of insulin resistance. And 80%. Oh, it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's, we don't really know why, but it's very closely correlated. And 50% of women with PCOS can progress to type 2 diabetes by the time 50%. they're 40. Mm-hmm. By the time they're 40. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. And this is like a hormone. Insulin is. is a hormone, right? Insulin yeah. is a hormone. It's my favorite hormone. And I don't and think hormones, it gets enough love. Also, hormones are just so confusing to like the average person. Like you think you'd talk about hormones, but you have no fucking clue. <laughs> <laughs> like all my hormones are all over the place. You're like, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like you feel hormonal as I think how we learned to use that word, which kind of makes it a hysterical thing. But hormones control every part of our our bodies. Yeah. (laughs) And doctors don't really learn about hormones because they're hard. They are not like the best quantitative metric. And so I think doctors like to stay away from it because they have to be taken at different times of the day. And for women, it's different periods of the month. And I do think that that's kind of made it something that it's like, well, it's not a great screening test. But when it comes to insulin resistance, insulin resistance is this disease state that can lead to type 2 diabetes that's associated with PCOS, it's associated with heart disease, it's associated with cancer, honestly, because it's a state of inflammation. And insulin is a fat storage and a hunger hormone. And so if that starts to become imbalanced, your whole metabolism and how you process and identify and use carbohydrates specifically becomes super disrupted. And so when someone comes to me and through my company, we have these at-home testing kits that test for fasting insulin because I look at that hormone and if it's high and we can calculate that you have early insulin resistance, that changes how people are looking at what's happening. They're like, oh my gosh, it's not just me. Okay. Like I have some data. Right. There's like a true marker on my test that show that like, oh, it's not just me. Like, oh, I want pizza, right? Okay. So what does insulin resistance actually mean? Because to me, insulin resistance sounds like my body's not making enough insulin. But then you just said if there's high insulin on a test, it sounds like maybe that's insulin resistance. Yes. hundred percent. It's confusing. I mean, it's so confusing to doctors even. I mean, honestly, it is confusing. Okay, so here's the quick breakdown. So insulin resistance is actually where your body is making insulin. Your pancreas secretes it. Its job is to grab blood sugar. So when you eat any form of carbohydrate, whether that's a healthy carb or bad carb, like sweets, that breaks down and insulin's job is to grab that. And then you take glucose off to all parts of your body. But in order for your body, your brain, your muscles, your organs to receive that glucose, it needs to be wrapped in insulin. But what happens over time, we see this in a large portion of the population, about 50%, your body says, I don't like that level of insulin that brought me that glucose. Can you make more? Because I'm not seeing that signal. And that's what insulin resistance is. And so your body gives a signal back to your pancreas to make more insulin. That in theory sounds good, but what happens is in that back and forth, your blood sugar rises and then your insulin goes too high to deal with that blood sugar and then you kind of crash. So when people talk about blood sugar imbalances, that's what's at play. It's like up and down. And what we ideally want is super stable blood sugar that might slightly go up after we have a meal, but like otherwise is feeling nice and good. And that we can help people with, with both these meds and like how you have them eat. Right. Okay. So because like when your blood sugar spikes, 
think about like you just had a piece of cake. There's like not a lot of good nutritional value. Then your blood sugar is going to drop really low. That's when you feel like, oh my God, I'm hungry. Oh my God, I need to like fill the tank again, right? Exactly. Okay. This is making more sense to me now. <laughs> this is confusing though. It's it is a confusing. very like 201, 301 science, you know? <laughs> it's not just like, hey, insulin. <laughs> I mean, I think it supersedes them in med school science. It's not exactly how we were taught, but no, we are learning so much about this and how people have an individualistic response that might not be population based. And I don't think the solution has to be that complicated. You know, one of the things that I'll tell people if we get an early insulin resistance diagnosis or if we have PCOS or we just know that we're like really primed and ready for this progression to type 2 diabetes, we just have to learn how to eat to fuel our bodies. So like one simple little hack, hate to use that word, but it's true, is, you know, to understand the difference between like proteins and fats and carbs and just how do we reorder them. So instead of eliminating a food group, a lot of times with, when I have patients who have this big sugar crash after a meal and like these highs and these lows, I'll have them focus on their protein first. And then after your protein on your plate, you then eat your, your vegetables, which are carbs. Actually, they're very healthy carbs. And then you move on to anything else on the plate. And it might be a little funny to deconstruct what you're eating, but it can make a very big difference because if your stomach sees a protein first, your insulin is already tempered. And we know that blood sugar oh, is significantly okay. reduced after a meal if you just reorder what you're eating. If you don't even change, but like just literally reorder. eat the protein first. Literally. Yeah. Like have, have it plate. hit your stomach first mm -hmm. before the other things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. It's simple. And you can start there and see how a meal will make you feel differently. Okay. So I think this is really interesting. And like I said, I've learned about the sort of approach to eating that is about keeping your blood sugar as steady as possible. Kelly Levesque, I think, has been really helpful in sort of the past couple of years teaching people about that. So I love to hear that in your practice, that's something that you implement. It feels like really good science. So now I'm curious for this person who is like, what did you say, PCOS adjacent or like has these like early indicators of insulin issues? Are they the person that will succeed on a GLP-1? So we know that these medications... Because I feel like people are like, oh, you only need Ozempic if you like are morbidly obese, no. right? That's so interesting. Let's go through the qualifications because you don't even need to be this typical patient. I mean, I think it's the patient that sees me and is like, you've so profoundly changed my life because every other doctor couldn't provide me with any solutions. But honestly, I just had people walk through my door who just need help with weight loss. And actually, these medications are indicated just for BMI cutoffs. And so they have been FDA approved for weight management with a BMI greater than 30 or a BMI greater than 27 with what we call a comorbidity, such a dramatic word, but that's the, the real word. And so if you do have high blood pressure or insulin resistance or abnormalities on labs, and I would consider PCOS part of that continuum too, then we kind of lower even the weight cutoff for these meds. So one of the big studies that came out recently was showing that we go V, which is the weight loss version of this drug only. So we're not even looking at people who have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes with ozempic. A big study just came out that showed significantly reduced cardiovascular disease over a five-year period 
Wow. Right. I mean, you're seeing all these studies. Right. Like it helps with alcoholism, heart totally. disease, oh all gosh. these things. It's amazing. Yeah. And so it's not just, it's just a wheat loss strategy. You're stealing it from people who really need it. No, actually, for people who just are even just, and again, that's in quotations, are using it for weight, we're seeing all of these expanded health benefits because excess weight isn't just a nuisance. It really is a disease that leads to more disease. So if you can help people take it off in a healthy way and maintain and sustain, then you kind of get all of these bigger health benefits down the road. You know, and I think we kind of need to lay off some of this. You're taking it from people who need it. It's literally the same drug. And it has been, insurance companies have made it a little bit prickly in how to get coverage, and some people can and can't. Why is that? Well, greed, American greed, I don't know. (laughs) It's really sad. And my hope, and when I come and do things like this and talk about how this is a disease, this isn't a nuisance. This isn't vanity, right? Insurances need to get on board that there are such big health, long-term health implications that everybody should have coverage. And I think it is going to be hard to start, like, In the next five years, I really hope there's a big dramatic shift in insurance coverage. I think it's going to be hard for them to justify not covering it. I think it's interesting. It's like long term, don't you want the people that you cover to be healthier so that you have to spend less money on them on like their like bypass down the road? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just sort of nonsensical that like. I agree with you, though. It's like once more and more studies come out about all of these other benefits of these type of medications that there has to be a shift, right? I feel like already there's a public outcry for like coverage of these medications. Can I ask what is to me, I don't know the answer to this, so I think it's a dumb question, but like, is everybody going to be on these medications in the next few years? And why are our bodies just not doing what they should be doing on their own? I mean, that's a million-dollar question. Is it because we, like, live in a state of processed food all the time and, like, we just live in a world that's not what the earth was 100 years ago in terms of, like, let's eat food grown in our village and, you know, all of these medications and plastics and stuff you mentioned? Is that why you say? Yes, yes. Our environment has changed that even if you're going to Peloton five times a week, and you go to Whole Foods, you're doing all the right things. The whole of the world has added up that it's not the world that humans developed in. And there are a lot of bigger things that are really out of our control that I don't even think we understand the full ramifications of. And I don't even think if you're like, yes, it's plastics exposure. We know plastics modulate the hormonal endocrine. They disrupt our endocrine system. And like what's in the air and what's around us. I don't even think if we identify it, we're necessarily going to be able to on an individual level shift it. And I think we all need to work toward Uh, advocating. You know, I think we're like far past the point of like, yeah, healing our environment out there. Totally. (laughs) So that we heal. And then some other really interesting things like on an environmental level, not only are we sitting and looking at screens all day, we are very comfortable. Like we're temperature controlled where you have air conditioner, we have heat. We don't, our body doesn't have to work as hard to exist in this world anymore, just on like a minute to minute. And so, yeah, so that is what's been happening. And there has been a massive shift since the 1980s of obesity just going from something that was rare to something that is prevalent and is the common. And that really has to do a lot with our processed foods and this focus on packaged foods, convenience foods, and also low fat. A lot of what we were sold and I was sold growing up is this like 
snack well culture of like low fat, yeah. high 100 sugar. calories, 100 calorie snack packs. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when we were little, we switched from, because we like to eat ruffles with onion dip in my house. And I remember when we shifted from like the full fat classic ruffle to the low fat ruffles. I'm like, what did that do for us? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I don't know. Nothing. <laughs> Probably just made us all unhealthier. So, you know. Nothing. <laughs> exactly. So focusing back, like getting back to the way that food should be eaten, I think is important. And then to answer the question about, will we all be on these medications? I don't necessarily think these medications are right for everyone. And I think we do have to be careful about entering into it a little bit temporarily too. And just like, oh, I just want to lose five to 10 pounds. That's not, to me, is not how these, well, it's not just to me. It's how the FDA says it and how my field says it. But that's not how these medications are intended to be used, really. We need to be thinking about they are indicated for long-term use. And if you don't need them, if like the risks outweigh the benefits for you and your family history isn't strong and your personal history isn't strong and your weight isn't at a place where you need them, we have to be very careful about this idea that they're just like a quick fix because we don't want to further disrupt what's been going on with our bodies living in this modern world. But 50% of our country does qualify based on BMI alone for these medications. So yeah, I think a lot of people with higher accessibility, better production, supply chain, I think a lot of people will consider this as part of a preventive part of their care, just like they say, hey, my cholesterol is getting high. I'm going to start to use a statin, right? I think we're going to start to change the way that we think about it. We're probably a little far off. I'm sure you know this stat, but it takes medicine and the world an average of 17 years to adopt what we know to be true through science into common medical practice and then common public acceptance. And so we're only about 10 years into that journey, I think. So I think it'll be still be a little bit of time. But GLP-1s are sort of like, as we're discussing them today, you said that they were approved or first came onto the market in 2004, 2005. Mm -hmm. So these are like very safe, extensively studied yes. medications. Yeah. There are only a few people that we shouldn't be using them in, and there are always room for modifications when you have a conversation with your doctor. But in theory, we do not use these in patients who have a family history of a very specific type of endocrine tumor that appears in both the thyroid and the pancreas. It's called MEN type 2 or medullary thyroid cancer. We stay away from them because in theory, they do have an uptick relationship in animal models, and we haven't seen this in humans, but we want to be extra safe. But otherwise, they are a very safe medication. And as long as you're working with someone who knows how to help you titrate and understands how to fight side effects, because there are side effects of these drugs, and this is like the, head, the clickbaity headlines that we see, helps you kind of mitigate them. Most people do very, very, very well in them. What about people, you know, I follow some people on the internet who talk about their journey with disordered eating and how it's really a struggle for them and how these medications have not necessarily been helpful for them. Can you speak to that? Yes, but I'm going to provide like two sides to that. So I actually think a lot of patients in my practice carry a history of disordered eating and they actually feel for the first time in their life that they have a much healthier relationship with food on the medications. They can actually sense hunger. They can make the right decisions of the food that potentially they couldn't before. Binge eating disorder when treated holistically, even with these medications, 
can be so transformative to people. And it just kind of heals again this relationship with the scale with the doctor's office and it starts to get to the root of a lot of trauma. I also think on the flip side that when you are actively dealing with an eating disorder and carry normal weight or in the normal weight spectrum, these medications and the narrative that's out in the world can be incredibly, incredibly triggering because now people are saying, well, but look, I'm getting skinny and I... I am using a medication to get here, and it's not rooted in health, and that can be very, very difficult. And again, this is why you need to work with someone who's like doing a really deep screen in your history, and this isn't just like, I'm going to go, my friend has a pen, and I'm going to pull it out of the refrigerator, and I'm going to like use it, or I'm going to go travel, or I'm going to go to even, you know, their med spas are releasing versions of this that aren't FDA approved, and people are like prescribing it because they think it's to get skinny option, but that's not how it's supposed to be used. And that, yeah, that is dangerous. Yeah, that sounds really challenging. I mean, there's so much on the internet about these medications. I mean, the headlines are either wildly (laughs) positive or like wildly shaming of the person who says like, oh, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. And I'm curious, not necessarily what you think about it, because I can guess what you think about all of this stuff. But I'm just, I'm more curious, do you think within a year, the conversation will just continue to shift on the approach to weight loss or just sort of how we're thinking about health as it relates to these types of medications? Because I think to your point, like Oprah coming out this week and being like, yeah, like I use a medication like this for maintenance and it's really helpful for me, I think is really, really helpful. But there's still so much shame associated with this, right? You know, you see influencers basically being pressured into revealing their health history on the internet because of like all the comments, right? And it's like, who wants to come out and say that they're doing this, right? And like they're getting praise when they do and they also continue to get shit on. It's like very complicated, like vicious cycle. And I know that's just the internet, but... I, I don't know. Do you think that like it's not just the internet? This is people's yeah. like Thanksgiving tables, right? Like okay. I have yeah, to, yeah. You're right. You're totally it's right. Not. It's the real like every, <laughs> okay. It's more than the internet. <laughs> totally. I mean, this is like I have to prep my patients that around the holidays when they're seeing family and friends that they have to be prepared to have kind of attacks on and questions, even if nobody knows what's going on. The first thing to say when someone has lost weight is like, "Do you have an eating disorder?" And mind you, this person has been really working very, very hard to lose, you know, significant weight. I think the conversation, I'm hopeful that the conversation will keep shifting. You know, two years ago, I was standing on a soapbox trying to tell people that excess weight was a disease and that we had holistic treatment and we shouldn't just be like willing ourselves to be skinny and dieting into oblivion. And now my phone won't stop ringing off the hook, right? Because now there has been a cultural shift. And what I hope is as more people like Oprah come out and say, I mean, she's so famous. She's the most famous person who struggled with her wheat and she's done everything under the sun. And just for her to say, I feel like this is a gift. I have been released. I can do all the things that I'm still doing. I am working out. I am eating perfectly. I'm doing all those things that I preached for years but now I can actually effectively do them because I have this medication that works on a hormonal level and is really getting deep into how my body operates. And so I think that there will continue to be a shift, but also it's nobody's business. And 
really be very careful. I actually had to reach out to a mutual friend. This is on Facebook. She put up a story and she was someone who really hasn't struggled with her weight. And she was posting a link to one of these clickbaity headlines. And she was like, oh, it's such the easy way out. And I just politely wrote to her and I was like, you don't realize, but probably you have many friends who are seeing this who are on these medications and it's not an easy way out. And it's been a lifelong struggle. And just like, consider your tone. And I hope that the more of like the world around us considers their tone about how we talk to people, there should not be shame about this. But I mean, as anyone who struggled with their weight knows, fat bias is one of like the biggest stigmas out in the world, you know, and it's from your family. It's from your doctor. It's from yourself. It's from the media. So it's from the guy at the bodega. Totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. it's everywhere judging you as you get your haul of food yeah i mean it's everywhere and i don't think it's going to go away overnight but i hope the tone just keeps shifting yeah well this has been a really really interesting and insightful conversation i couldn't agree with you more i'm curious i know that you have this incredible practice i know that you also sort of like have an adjacent holistic business that supports weight loss can you just talk about that because it seems like There's medications, there's cognitive behavioral therapy, different ways of eating. But like, talk me through the Dr. Soa approach to sort of overall health. So I started years ago with my medical practice, but realized I wanted to help more people. And so the medical practice that was brick and mortar in New York City is now telehealth and is in 15 states. And we run- Wow. Yeah, we run a really- exciting group medical management platform where people come and support each other and get one-on-one medical care. The company is called So Well Health and we have a medical arm to it. And then I have realized how many more people needed support outside of the doctor's office. And so we launched an at-home testing kit during the pandemic that looks for insulin resistance. We're the only kit on the market that does that. Oh, wow. Um, cool. Yeah. And it's called the Weight Biology Kit and kind of gets into what's going on and can give you like I want to take that. steps to get like talking to your doctor. <laughs> okay. And we have supplements and What's really exciting in the next few months is that we're really becoming a company that supports people who are on GLP-1 medications, and we have products that are coming out to support people on their journey. And just, you know, we've got like information hubs and come to us before you go to random threads on the internet. Bring us your questions. We have a community that's growing. So we're called Soa Health, and we're here to support you wherever you are on your weight loss and metabolic health journey. Everyone, please join me from your devices in giving a big collective thank you to Dr. Soa for coming on the show today. I learned so much, and I also admit I have had some preconceived notions, things, you know, just thoughts, right, about obesity medicine, Ozempic, all of this stuff. And so today for me was a great opportunity to learn from the best of the best. And I just wanted to thank Dr. Soa for coming on and teaching us so much about where medicine is going. So I also realized today's format was a little all over the place, but that's okay, right? This is our podcast. We can do what we want. But if you do have a head heart health question, email us at gutfeelings at lovewellness.com. You can DM it to me or to the Love Wellness account, or you can leave your question on our show's social posts in the comments. And if you like the show, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that we can keep making amazing episodes for you throughout 2024. I'm Love Osworth, and I will see you next time on Gut Feelings. Mm-hmm.